Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you're listening to this show, then you already know the numbers of Gettysburg. 90,000 federal troops, some 70,000 in Lee's army, more than 50,000 casualties in three days. But there's another number, 80,000, the number of horses and mules in the two armies that fought there. And their story is rarely told. We'll talk about horses in the Civil War at Gettysburg and beyond with licensed battlefield guide Chris Bagley, author of The Horse at Gettysburg, Prepared for the Day of Battle. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. America at facebook.com forward slash voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, home of the Pirates, uh, but not speaking for the Pirates, speaking just for myself, as I always do here at Civil War Talk Radio, and my guest, likewise, speaks only for himself. Well, it's good to be back. We've had two weeks without a live show. It's been spring break here on campus, and while I was away, the uh, ECU women's basketball team won the conference tournament, uh, and they're going on to the NCAA tournament. This hasn't happened in, I don't know, 15 years at least here at ECU. So it's a, a big deal. The women's team had been picked to finish last in their conference. Instead, they finished third, then they won the tournament. Uh, the baseball team is underway. They're doing great. They're nationally ranked. Softball's off to a good start. Lacrosse. There's plenty of bandwagons for me to jump on here uh, if if uh, one of them falters. But there's also local good news on the Civil War front to share with you. Uh, today is the 15th of March, 2023, as you're listening. And most of you are not listening live, I know. Uh, 
But if you get this in time, March 27th at 10 a.m. in Goldsboro, North Carolina, uh, come downtown, 201 South Center Street, for the uh, dedication of the newest Civil War trails sign that you've seen. If you live on the East Coast, those Civil War trails signs all over the place. And uh, there's a new one going up to commemorate the actions of the 135th USCT, United States Colored Troops, uh, in Goldsboro. It was a local initiative to research and put up this marker. So check that out on March 27th if you're in the area. Other good Civil War news, the American Battlefield Trust just bought 140 acres at Bentonville, North Carolina, uh, site of the, the biggest battle in the state where I'm sitting uh, during the war. And that's a, a, it's a beautiful battlefield if you're ever in this part of the country. Uh, check out Bentonville. It's not a national site. It's a state site. And it's still in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. So uh, the land is was still available, and, and they're able to get some of that. And apparently, in, in further news, the American Battlefield Trust is looking at purchasing some of the endangered land at the Wise Forks Battlefield, also here in North Carolina. So lots of activity going on. Wise Forks is not out of the woods. I did follow up and donate some of your donations to the show to American Battlefield Trust for just that purpose. Actually, I take it back. I donated that for the Dowdles Tavern at, at Chancellorsville Drive. Uh, we'll donate more to Wise Forks, and I donated to that already uh, and, and, and urge you to do the same. Lots of other news coming up. When you're away two weeks, the, the backlog builds up. We've got Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours trips coming up in uh, May and October. I think the May bus is full. Look forward to meeting everybody uh, when we go. But look ahead to the October 2023 trip. And the Civil War Institute is coming up at Gettysburg College in June, June 9 through 14, 2023. If you sign up for that, let them know you're a listener to this show, and they will give you a 15% discount. Uh, what you can do with that discount, I'll tell you in just a few minutes, but let me keep sharing the news. There's all kinds of things, as I said, to catch up on. Uh, we've got a schedule for the rest of the semester, for most of the semester. I won't read the whole thing. Uh, but next week, we'll have Dylan Carroll with uh, what I believe is his first book called Invisible Wounds, Mental Illness and Civil War Soldiers. Then we'll have John M. Satcher, and I may be saying his name wrong. I'll fix it by then. Uh, Confederate Conscription and the Struggle for Southern Soldiers. On the 5th of April, Bruce Chadwick will discuss uh, Fort Sumter. The book is called The Cannon's Roar, Fort Sumter, and the start of the Civil War, an oral history. How can one do an oral history when everyone's dead? We'll find out. Uh, on the 12th, Faye Yarborough joins us for Choctaw Confederates, the American Civil War in Indian Country. And on April 19th, we will celebrate, uh, if all goes well up till then, the 600th episode of Civil War Talk Radio. And uh, returning for that, we'll have special guest Harold Holzer, who helped start this program 20 years ago and uh, has been a longtime uh, friend and supporter of the show and a friend of mine. Uh, so he will be back to talk about all he's doing. He's got new books in the hopper. He's written 50 books. We'll have plenty to talk about. On the 26th of April, Jessica Zapparo, This Grand Experiment, When Women Entered the Federal Workforce in Civil War Era, Washington, D.C., 
On May 3rd, John Avalon, Lincoln and the Fight for Peace. And then on May 10th of 2023, Ty Sedgley and his book, Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. I've had more people write asking if I could get him on the show than almost any guest I can remember. And happy to say it's going to happen. That'll bring us to the Hallowed Ground Tour, no live show on May 17th. We'll do the rest of the schedule another time. You can find it all, as always, on www.impedimentsofwar.org. While you're there, click on the PayPal button to donate to the Civil War book and other objects, uh, bourbon, drinks, whatever it is I want to buy. Um, well, I'll tell you what I'm going to buy is something nice to commemorate uh and personal brag time coming. My daughter's achievement in uh, in in May, uh, she will be finishing uh, medical school. In fact, this week is match week. Uh, I'm thrilled to say she's thrilled to learn that she has, in fact, matched with a hospital for her residency. They announced that on Monday of match week, if she matched or not. Uh, and then you have to wait all week till Friday to find out where you're going to be working the next four years. And apparently, uh, she tells me some some of the graduates don't get connected to a hospital. Hospital doesn't get a graduate, and some people thus spend all of Match Week from Monday through Friday frantically interviewing, trying to get connected. And this just seems bizarre. How can there be situations where doctors can't find employment? Do we have so many doctors that the price of healthcare has gone really low? I don't think that's happened. Um, Anyway, the good news is uh, uh, she will be a doctor, or not like me, but a real doctor in, in just a few uh, weeks, celebrating that in May. So couldn't resist sharing that news with you tonight. Um, back to impedimentsofwar.org. While you're there, I said donate to the show, Civil War Book Fund, not limited to books, not tax deductible. And think of it, 600 shows, 600 episodes. If you donate $30... That's, if I have my math right, five cents per show. There is nothing you can buy for a nickel today except an hour of Civil War talk radio. Now, of course, you may be saying, I could get, yes, I can get access to all 600 episodes for just five cents a piece, but I could also get them for free by not donating. I ask you, are you that desperate to save five cents? Is your self-respect so devalued you would rather save the five cents and carry your share of this great collective enterprise. In the words of William Shakespeare from Henry V, and gentlemen in civil war land now online shall think themselves accursed they did not donate and hold their manhoods cheap whilst any speaks that put up 30 bucks for 600 episodes. So keep that in mind. Uh, don't deduct it though, I'll say it again. It's not tax deductible, not a charity. Well, if you've been out to Gettysburg, you have seen the tourists driving in their thousands and walking in their tens of thousands, and a few people apparently not embarrassed to be seen on segways. But you may also have seen others touring the battlefield as it really ought to be toured on horseback. Uh, they're a reminder of the days when 80,000 horses and mules converged on the scene. And that's what we're going to talk to talk about tonight with our guest, Chris Bagley, author of the horse at Gettysburg prepared for the day of battle. Uh, Chris, are you there? 
I am, Jerry. Good evening, and uh, thank you very much for having me. And I got to start out first off and say congratulations on your daughter. Oh, I've thank been, you. I've been a registered nurse for 34 years, and we work with uh, a lot of new uh resident physicians when they first mm -hmm. arrived at the hospital. So, you know, I, I get it. I understand uh, those positions fill up fast. And did, did she uh, actually have a top choice of what she wanted to do? Uh, she did. She's kind of closed mouthed about it. Um, I, I, and I've been afraid to say anything to avoid jinxing it. I, uh, I, I get, I get uh, you. And she's got, but, but she's got, <laughs> Well, uh, I think at one point she said she interviewed and the interviewer said, if you didn't match into OBGYN, what would you do? And she said, I would train Falcons for action movies. Uh, at that point, I thought they should have hired her on the spot. I mean, that's just yeah. Well, you know, that's great because the hospital I work at has an OB/GYN residency program. Um, never know, maybe she'll end up coming to Ohio. That that would be but fine. I'm sure there's other, uh, here is probably not as nice as what you guys get down in North Carolina, at least uh, right at about this time of year. No, it's been been pretty good, pretty good around here for sure. Well, it, it's um, it, let me say how much I appreciate you. You've taken my first question about what's your day job uh, uh, and answered <laughs> it, and how much I appreciate uh, what you do. And and I know uh, my daughter Caroline does too. She was an EMT before she went to med school. Oh, yeah, well, so she uh, yeah, I get it. You know, she she gets it that that what who does the real work everywhere. So so I th hopefully that'll make her a better doctor too. Uh, yeah. Well, let me ask this: You're obviously a Civil War person to write a book, yes. The Horse at Gettysburg, mm -hmm. um, but also from the beautiful photos in this book of uh, your own horse, you're you're clearly a horse person too. Which came first uh, of those two interests? Uh, well, they, they kind of started uh, when I first started doing tours in Gettysburg. Uh, the very first tour I did was a horseback tour. And, you know, at first I was more concerned about, you know, telling a story and, you know, getting the, you know, visitors, you know, the best tour I could give them. And, you know, in between tours, you're kind of, you know, you got a little bit of downtime. Mm -hmm. And I would sit and kind of get to know these animals. And the more I got to know these animals, I, you know, actually missed their presence when I wasn't in Gettysburg. And uh, I went and tried to find some books on horses in the Civil War. And there are a few out there. Uh, Gene Armistead wrote uh, Horses and Mules in the Civil War, which is a very good, well-written book. Mm -hmm. And uh, also, Blake Manger wrote Traveler and Company, and that is also another uh, nice work to read. But I uh, was looking for something to kind of combine the two, the, the logistics of the horse, the training, and then, you know, how they reacted in battle and, uh, you know, how the men had to go through, you know, days and weeks upon, of training, you know, to get accustomed to riding these animals. You know, at the, at the onset of the war, you know, the Southern Army actually had some uh, distinct advantages as, you know, many of these uh, soldiers for the Confederacy 
were farmers and were skilled in the use of horses for various purposes. Whereas, say, somebody is a cobbler and joins the cavalry up north, they might see horses in the street, you know, pulling wagons and carts and stuff, but they may not have any expertise in riding or training horses or allowing the horse to train you to a, a lesser degree. So, you know, there was that advantage to uh, the Southern Army. And then as the war progressed, you know, after about two years of bloody conflict, you know, Northern uh, Cavalry and uh, the horsemen in the North, you know, started to come into their own, including the artillery, of course. And that's when you see, you know, they're kind of on even match. And this is probably uh, proven at no better place than Brandy Station, which just preceded the uh, Battle of Gettysburg, but not even a month. Mm-hmm. So- well, that that's true that the... Uh- uh, the South ab- absolutely had an advantage in cavalry early in the war. It's uh, it, it's a pet peeve of mine. I emphasize with my students that the North was not an industrial state, and I know you didn't say it was. Uh, the North was, was overwhelmingly agricultural also, sure. but but still it also had more urban centers than the South by far, and it did have people not as familiar with riding horses as the South. So so you're absolutely right. Uh, and and you, you have in your book descriptions of a, a green federal regiment and uh, yes. the, the horses going everywhere. You, you've used the phrase uh, training the horse or, or getting the horse uh, to train you, as it were. Right. The, the, this was a real individual sort of uh, experience, I guess, for, for a, a new rider, a new new cavalry soldier to learn. Absolutely it is. You know, um, every horse is different, just like people. I mean, some horses are very docile and tame, and others are, like Maverick, uh, can definitely be um, very energetic. And it's your horse, yeah, absolutely. Yep. It's yeah. And, you know, Maverick is kind of a one person horse where, you know, uh, trail horses at Gettysburg, you know, they may carry two or three, you know, different individuals, you know, throughout the day on tours across the battlefield. So, you know, horses will differ just like the people that ride them. So you have to get to know the horse. The horse has to get to know you. And that's where, you know, the that initial training, that is where uh, the bond starts to form between you know the animal and the writer and uh i wanted to you know when i first started writing this book i wanted to do something that you know combine that so people that love horses could read my book but if they don't understand gettysburg it wouldn't go over their head and vice versa and then you have people in the middle that may be just interested in the topic i i wrote this book for everybody to be able to read not just you know a small select group of individuals well i think you 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 hit that target it is a, a beautiful book the photographs in full color are, are, are gorgeous yes. if, if you're a horse person it would be attractive for sure but there's also a lot for those of us in civil war country to learn from it we're going to take a short break we'll come back talk more with our guest tonight chris bagley he's the author of the horse at gettysburg prepared for the day of battle i'm jerry prokopovich this is civil war talk radio Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P. O W I C Z G at ECU dot EDU. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Chris Bagley, author of The Horse at Gettysburg Prepared for the Day of Battle. It is a book about horses in the Civil War. The focus is certainly on the Battle of Gettysburg, but for someone uh, like me, who does not ride horses, uh, have done so a handful of times in my life. I've been on horseback, but but don't know much about them. I learned a lot from this. Uh, the overwhelming impression I got, Chris, was that horses sound like a lot of work. <laughs> Absolutely, they are. You know, uh, when I would uh, do tours at the uh, National Riding Stables Horse Rescue, um, they would have usually, uh, and it would vary on how busy they were in a day, you know, three or four wranglers. And these wranglers, by and large, were young female girls that were, uh, you know, weighed about 110 pounds soaking wet. And they had the hardest job I could imagine. They take these animals that are on average of 1,000 to 1,200 pounds, and they move them around like a child's toy. They don't take any you know, back talk from them, as it were. <laughs> and they, you know, before that first ride goes out in the morning, they have to brush the animals, pick their hooves. They have to take out 50-pound saddles, put them on the uh, animal's back, get them ready to go. And then they have to, you know, help the guests get up on the horses, make sure they're seated properly in the saddle. And, you know, it's a very, you know, uh, demanding job physically, you know, just to give, you know, uh, a person, you know, a nice quality two hour tour throughout the field. So, yeah, I mean, those gals are there. They bring their coffee with them. By the time they get it, it's ice cold. So they've, they've, they've spent the morning clubs. working. And, and now the same thing would be true then, of course, for a, a Civil War soldier. He, he's got to yeah. take care of his mount. There's no separate staff to do that for him yeah well you know the average civil war soldier uh whether it was artillery or cavalry you know after you had your reveille took your roll call the next bugle uh sound that you would hear would be uh stable call which was to you know make sure your animals are squared away for the day they got their morning feed and forage water they got their hooves clean brushed down uh, depending on what was on the agenda for today, you know, they may be saddled up and, you know, uh, get ready to move out. And then once the soldiers were done doing that, then they could go and try to, you know, grab something to eat before, you know, maneuver started or they started, you know, on a campaign. When you say, say when you say they get something to eat or they, they feed the horses, uh, the horses eat a lot. 
They can. Oh, yes. Yeah. Horses on average, um, you know, I know, and I didn't realize this until I started doing these tours, uh, but horses can uh, graze, you know, either on grass or hay or whatnot uh, for sometimes up to 16 hours a day. Mm. And that's in addition to their morning feed. And yeah, horses love to eat. I, you know, Maverick, uh, he definitely loves his cookies and his apples when I bring them out to him. And, uh, you know, they have to uh, eat so much hay in a day, drink so much water. It's, you know, for their digestion. Uh, that way, you know, their digestive tract stays in good health. And that's, you know, one of the big problems that horses can get what they call colic. And, and it can be deadly to an animal. So, yeah, not only is the feed and forage important, but also water. So the armies many times would move from water source to water source. Uh, and, you know, streams and creeks and rivers were ideal because, you know, the water keeps moving as opposed to a stagnant pond. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, they would either bring the horses to the water or bring the water to the horses. Where did the government get all these horses well, they set up a series of, eventually set up a series of cavalry depots, and they would have um, contractors, uh, people that were uh, contracted through the government to provide horses for the war effort, and they were usually given a flat fee. Well, as the war progressed, they found that sometimes the uh, quality of horse flesh was lacking. So, you know, there's that saying, never look a gift horse in the mouth. So they might be saying, yeah, this horse is only five years old. But you know, in reality, it might be 15, 16, 17, kind of past the prime of where they wanted it. So eventually they would have these depots and they would have veteran horse soldiers inspect the animals to make sure that you're not trying to get one over on Uncle Sam. And, uh, you know, if the horse was accepted, they branded them with U.S. If they were not, they branded them with a, a letter R and basically means rejected. So, you know, that way they knew that the least the quality of the horse was there. It's what they expected to see. And then they could eventually, you know, get enough to, you know, uh, furnish to a regiment or a uh, artillery battery or whatnot. And they could begin their training. So, so yeah, the biggest uh, cavalry depot uh, in the eastern theater of the war mm-hmm. was at Geesboro, Maryland, which is today seated uh, on what's now Joint Base Anacostia across from Reagan International. There's nothing really left of it except, I believe, a memorial plaque, but that's where it was situated. It was built to house around 30,000 animals, and at its peak, it was right around 22,000. So that is a lot of horse flesh. And, you know, many of these were new arrivals. Some were being rehabbed from wounds they sustained in combat and others, you know, possibly from uh, disease or uh, illness. And they could get them back on their feet or hooves as a uh, situation would warrant and then get them back out in the service. So you have a a discussion of horse breeds in your book. Did the cavalry buyers look for certain breeds of horses or they just take what they could get? Well, basically what they were looking for is the uh, physical quality of the horse. Was the horse in good shape? Was it the right age? Um, you know, some were, uh, that's where you get some of the names of standard breads, or it might be saddle breads, thoroughbreds, quarter horses, Morgans. I mean, they may not have all the same type of horse, but, you know, those kind of horses are what you're in, you know, think of for uh, uh, uh 
for cavalry or uh, possibly a general or a curry or something like that. Whereas your drought horses, the big draft horses, those are the ones that you're going to put into the artillery. Those are the ones that have the ability to pull those heavy, you know, cannon and the limber or the caisson as the case may be. So it would depend on the breed of the horse, but those were just some of the different types of breeds that were available back then. And then I also blended in the color schemes. That way, if you read in a book, say, you know, Richard Garnett was on Red Eye, who was a bay thoroughbred. Well, not only do I show what a thoroughbred looks like, I show you what a bay horse would look like. So when you picture that, you can actually draw that mental picture, you know, that it's a dark brown horse with black points. That is the, you know, the mane, the tail, muzzle, lower legs, that kind of thing. I, I've, if I'm painting some 54 millimeter size plastic toy soldiers on horseback, uh, mm-hmm. if, if they're on horseback, I just, I, I just, oh, they're all brown, and I'm, and I'm done painting. Uh, you know, uh, that's but it, actually not a bad thing uh-huh. because it blends in. Uh, you know, like I said, in, in the book, I make mention that there's very few true white horses. Mm-hmm. Most people say, oh, look at the white horse. It's actually a gray horse. Hmm. But uh, the true white horse is the exception, not the rule. So when you're on a lighter colored horse, say something like a gray, it's going to stand out or it may stand out, which might put you at risk of being a target. Whereas something that's brown, black, uh, buckskin color, that it might help that would blend into the you know scenery, as it were, give you a little camouflage. Now, you pointed out that uh, federal regiments often you know, chose for, for those reasons darker horses, but the Confederates, at least at the start of the war, had to bring their own horses. So right. You'd have yeah. a lot of variety, I guess. Sure. I, I would think you would have a, a, a much greater uh, a variety in the southern ranks just for that sole purpose. But, you know, if you look at, you know, drive by a field, uh, by far and large, you're going to see. Uh, basically the blondish type horses, grays, and also the reddish brown, which is a sorrel, and bay horses or, you know, chestnut brown. Those are the more common colors, at least here in Ohio. Yes, there are other horses uh, that, you know, have different colored coats. Some are very exotic and some are just, you know, they're just uh, standard mill of the run color. So, yeah, it's going to see that in in the Confederate ranks, I think, a little bit more. You point out uh, in the book, in a number of chapters, that the horse, as an animal, is not a predator. It's prey. Uh, And that that has a huge influence on its behavior. I think at one point you wrote, uh, only two things can spook a horse, uh, things that move and things that don't move. Yeah. Uh, so how, how do you train these skittish beasts to deal with, uh, being, you know, they're going to be in combat. Things are going to move all around them. Things are going to blast all around them. How did civil war soldiers prepare horses to deal with that? Well, there's a, uh, noted horse trainer that I like, uh, He's modern day horse trainer. His name is Clinton Anderson. And one of his sayings is heart attacks are free. Feel free to give your horse one. Well, it's, it's kind of, yeah. But the thing is, is the way you desensitize at least a horse or, you know, mule, whatever the case may be, <laughs> is you want to bring the scary thing right into the horse and you want to scare them with it eventually that horse with time training and reassurance is going to see that that is not something that he should or she should be afraid of now in the case of the cavalry 
Uh, you're looking at uh, new recruits. They might be mounted on their horses, maybe 150 feet away. They got ex uh, experienced cavalrymen that are going to start firing their pistols and carbines. This is going to startle the horse. But as the horses are calmed and reassured, what will happen next is that source of, uh, uh, you know, scaring the horse will come closer to them. And until, you know, the troopers literally are sitting on top of these animals now firing their pistols. But it's not just pistols that you have to worry about. What about things like drums, bugles, flags, lances, swords, all the equipment that rattles and make noise? So, uh, you know, it's a gradual process. It doesn't happen overnight. And that also is something that helps build the relationship or the bonding between the individual and the animal because they learn to trust you. And as a consequence, you learn to trust them because now you're working together. I once had a student uh, here who took a civil war course who had served in the U.S. Army's ceremonial mounted unit. Mm -hmm. And he talked about horses as herd animals, getting yes. them to do things in formation uh, to follow the leader. That when one does, if it, you suggest in the book, in any group of horses, there will be an alpha horse uh, who, and, and others will follow. So well, how, how, how does that work? Well, when you're on the horse, you're the alpha. You're the leader, okay. mm -hmm. not the horse. Uh, yeah. Now, do uh, some things happen where, you know, what you want to do and the horse wants to do are in conflict and may not work out well? Yes, of course, that happens. And it, you know, it's not uncommon to see that happen at events or whatnot. But for the most part, that horse is going to obey the cues of the rider, whether that's, you know, heel pressure, uh, pulling on the rein, uh, you know, how your posture is, you know, any little thing like that that can, you know, convey to that horse what you want to do or you're going to be you know riding in a column of two or in a straight line um you have to be able to communicate that to the animal and like i said yeah out in the pasture yeah you take you know the civil war horses you know say a small squadron of horses turn them all loose they're, they're herd animals and they're going to slowly you know uh, figure out the pecking order who's number one all the way down to the most docile so, but when you get on the horse, you're the boss. And that's why it takes training and a building of a bond for uh, you to be able to trust that horse. And it will, in turn, trust and have a bonding to you. Which I think in, in many cases is why so many of the men, you know, when they lost their horses, it, it hurt because it was like losing a family member. I mean, maybe your listeners don't own horses. I'm sure there's some that do, but what about dogs or cats or something, you know, uh, an animal that you've had around for 10 years, and now you're faced with the choice of seeing that animal suffer or having to put it down and put the poor thing out of its misery. So, you know, it's not an easy thing to do. And when it's in war, you know, it's not something that, you know, you're uh, given a warning. It can happen at any moment. It can be quick. It can be slow. Let me ask you about that. You, you, at the Battle of Gettysburg, for example, you talk about how on the first day, uh, Reynolds' troops have come up, the Iron Brigade has come up in support of Buford's cavalry at McPherson's Ridge and Herbst Woods, and they're, they're fighting the, the Confederates of A.P. Hill. And the word has to get back to Reynolds, or, or back to Meade, rather, uh, what's going on here. So a courier gets sent, 
And you say sometimes, and this is an example, a courier is told, go full speed the whole way, even though it will exhaust and possibly kill your horse. Yeah, so now, absolutely. I, what a difficult moment. Yeah, and that, that's especially if that horse, you know, if, if you've just acquired the horse or it was just issued to you or whatnot, you know, it may not be something that you would, you know, but if it's a horse that you've had for a year, year and a half or whatever, yeah, that horse is part of you. And that is something that, you know, I believe it was Francis Adams of the 1st Massachusetts Cavalry said, you know, he did his best for the horses, but, you know, in order to bring a quick end to the war. You know, if that needs to be done, then that's what you have to do. Um, unfortunately, I don't know if the courier that went from Reynolds to Meade, if his horse survived the ride, he made it in about an hour and 20 minutes, which tells me he didn't go at a full gallop the entire time. He probably staggered that horse. You know, it's like when you go out and jog. Some people will jog very quickly for maybe a minute and then they walk and, you know, they kind of alter their pace. Mm -hmm. So, you know, same thing with the horse. It could very well be that that horse made it there in one piece and, you know, uh, survived that day. So, so the, the picture, the idea in the movies of a horse galloping at full speed for half an hour, they can't do that. Uh, no, uh, I mean, you look at the fastest two minutes in sports, it's the uh, Kentucky Derby. Mm-hmm. And the track is, uh, I think it's a little about a mile and a half or something mm-hmm. like that. And these horses, you know, the fastest gallop, I believe they clocked was 37 miles an hour. But even a thoroughbred, and that's what those horses are built for. They're built for speed mm-hmm. and endurance. I mean, even those horses are going to be hard-pressed to gallop for five miles without, you know, needing some type of break. Mm-hmm. So, so, so we have to take that with a grain of salt when we see them. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you've got definitely. Hollywood version, and then you have, you know, real life. So, uh, you know, you, you always have to take it with a grain of salt. But as you say, 30 miles an hour, when a horse is going full speed, they are mm-hmm. impressive animals. I was walking across the battlefield of Perryville once many, many years ago, uh, with mostly private land. I was walking on a road, and uh, uh, four horses in a in a fenced-in field just decided they would gallop right at me from across the field. And as they were approaching, I thought, well, there's a fence. They're not going to bust their fence, I, I'm sure. <laughs> but boy, it was uh, an intimidating sight. And I then I ex- tried to extrapolate. Now imagine they were mounted with uh, riders uh, with weapons. Imagine how, how terrifying that would be. Yeah. Uh, and and we see this uh, on the third day at Gettysburg in, in the, the East Cavalry Field. You talk about uh, the two lines of, of, of soldiers charging at one another. Let, let's pause on that thought and come back. I want to ask more about things that happened on the field at Gettysburg, uh, which is which are the topic of the book called The Horse at Gettysburg, Prepared for the Day of Battle. It's written by Chris Bagley, who is our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics, reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Chris Bagley, author of The Horse at Gettysburg, Prepared for the Day of Battle. We've been talking about the uh, the horse in war, the, the many things that go into getting a horse ready to participate in this uh, uh, irrational and, and senseless activity that humans engage in where they kill one another. Um, the fighting at Gettysburg by cavalry was it, sometimes on horseback, as we saw the you know Custer and Hampton and the, the cavalry field on, on day three, but there's also a lot of dismounted fighting. And in mounted fighting, did, did these horses wouldn't run into one another i suppose well if you look at some of the accounts uh jerry on especially on july 3rd at east cavalry field uh they said it was like when the two lines met and hit each other it sounded like trees falling over uh just you know from the sheer collision of you know these thousand pound animals all the accoutrements that they're wearing and you know plus the you know riders on top of them so yes i'm sure there were you know instances where they did hit each other and then you're looking at close order combat so you have men with pistols uh some firing carbines if they had them uh and then you also have sabers being you know swung and wielded uh you can look at you know wade hampton who was uh injured you know during that melee and uh you know when you're on a horse you know, you're trying to control the horse in the midst of all this chaos, you know, even moving your leg one way or another can influence that horse on how it thinks you want it to move. So you have to, you know, keep your wits about you and have some situational awareness. So, you know, the horse is going to respond the way you want it and not inadvertently put yourself in danger where, you know, perhaps you, you know, spin around the wrong way. And now you have, you know, a free shot at you, so to speak. Go ahead. You have an interesting example of of that kind of thing happening uh, where horses don't always do what what the rider expects or desires uh, at Gettysburg when uh, uh, on the second day, the second day is fighting Mm -hmm. listeners, you know, what's happening on the 
the, the federal left flank around Little Round Top, Devil's Den, the Wheatfield. The Longstreet's troops are rolling up Sickles' corps, and uh, General Meade, the Union commander-in-chief, goes to visit, and his his horse gallops away. He loses control of his horse. Uh, that I mean, Meade's, Meade's an experienced rider. How does that happen? Well, it, uh, this is why it's always a good idea to know the animal you're going to climb on. Uh, so if, you know, you have a horse, that horse is used to your, you know, particular uh, cues that you give it and whatnot, and you're used to that horse. But, you know, uh, Baldy was not ready at the time, so uh, Pleasanton offered the use of his horse. Now, um both the uh, Civil War horses, especially with the officers, they had, uh, you know, the bit that fits in the horse's mouth. One is called a snaffle, which, you know, fits right up against the inside of the horse's mouth. And then the other is a curb, which is like uh, metal shanks that hang down at the side. Uh, if you are used to reining the horse using one and not the other, if you inadvertently pull the wrong strap, it could spook the horse. It might pinch its mouth or something like that. And the horse is going to spook. And you already just had a live artillery shell whistle overhead. So it was not in a good mood anyway. And then Meade made a, a bad situation, but worse by pulling the wrong rein. And that was basically uh, um, conveyed by uh, Henry Tremaine, uh, who was on sickle staff as to why that incident happened. It was just lucky for me that uh, the animal ran back toward federal lines and not galloped across the Emmitsburg road. Wow. So yeah, that was yeah. A, a close call. Now yeah. the, uh, I, I did want to ask this or at least lay this out there. Cause I'm sure most listeners have heard this story uh, about the equestrian statues at Gettysburg. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but they they are beautiful. You have some beautiful color photographs of them uh, in the book of, of different leaders on both sides mounted on their horses. But most of us have heard the uh, the alleged code of, of the, the rider's fate. T- tell us about that. Okay. Well, as the story goes, um, if you see a horse and the rider, and the horse has all hooves down. Now, this is at Gettysburg. I don't know about other battlefields, but at Gettysburg, this is how it got started. If the uh, horse had all hooves down, the rider survived. In which case, if you look at George Gordon Meade mounted on his horse on Cemetery Mm -hmm. Ridge, the horse has all planted, or his uh, horse has his hooves planted. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Meade did survive the battle and was not wounded. And then uh, later that day, the equestrian statue of Winfield Scott Hancock was dedicated over on East Cemetery Hill. And by looking at that horse, you can see it has one hoof raised. One of the front hoofs is raised. So they said, oh, that means the rider was killed. And it further cemented it when in 1899, John Reynolds' equestrian statue is dedicated. And now you have uh, a horse with two hooves up. And now Reynolds, of course, was killed in action on July 1st. So that's where the myth started to perpetuate. But as time went on, they interviewed Henry Kirk Bush Brown, who was the sculptor of not only Meade, but also Reynolds' uh, equestrian statue. And they came out point blank and asked him, you know, was this what you meant to convey was the fate of the writer? And he said, no, it has nothing to do with the fate of the writer. I will say this for the longest time up until 1998, the coincidence held true. 
but Reynolds was a man of action on July 1st. That's how uh, Henry Crook Bush Brown wanted to portray him. Uh, he has Meade on his horse staring across the fields at Robert E. Lee. You know, the two men locked in gaze, you know, for the rest of time. But in 1998, now you have James Longstreet. And his uh, horse was unveiled. And that horse not just doesn't have one hoof up, it has half of the back hoof up. So he's one and a half. Now, what does that mean? Well, <laughs> it means nothing, really, because that myth was disproven back in 1915. So I always tell people, yeah, is it a coincidence? Yes, up until 1998. Now it is not. It's, you know, just something fun to talk about on tours. But I always make sure to let the people down easy, you know, especially if they're around, you know, family or friends. I, you know, I just say, well, you know, you got to, you know, look at the facts and the facts, you know, support, you know, what the sculptor himself said. That, that's so true when, when uh, you know, in a museum or on a battlefield and you're giving a, a tour, somebody knows something cool. Hey, did you know one huff means they're wounded, two means they're, they're killed? And, and of course, it's not true. Then, then. Uh, you want to leave them so they go home with some some different fact that where sure. they can be the one to say, "Hey, I know something you don't. You don't want to embarrass them." Yeah. Uh, obviously, you know that uh, from being oh, a better yeah. tour guide. Now, I learned you know so many interesting details from this. Uh, a horse needs uh, can can get by on three hours of sleep per night. Yeah, yeah if you look at um, horses out in the field. Mm-hmm. Uh, you may see them and they might be standing there very quietly and they may have one of their back hooves just kind of cocked slightly. And uh, that usually means the horse might be just resting and they can sleep standing up. They have what's called a stay apparatus, which Mm -hmm. basically we don't have. So if we fall asleep standing up, we're probably going to fall over. The horse is able to stand with its legs locked and it will not fall over. But horses do lay down and they do sleep. Uh, they don't need as much sleep as we think that they do. You know, we're judging them by our standard, not theirs. So, yeah, they only need. But, you know, you got to look at quantity versus quality. You know, if you're, you know, a horse is trying to sleep or trying to rest and decompress like we would. And you have all this commotion going on all over the battlefield. You know, it's just, you know, it would be the same for us. You'd be on pins and needles. So, I don't think that uh, the horses and the men that rode them and uh, just these soldiers in general got too much sleep during the three days at Gettysburg. No, no, clearly not. <laughs> well, you, I mean, you talk about the, uh, you know, the stimulation, the, 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 the bombardments, the, the danger that these horses had to deal with. And you, again, I'm learning about horses from this book that, uh, Horses can see a lot more than than humans can, or at least more peripheral vision. Well, the uh, horses have the one of the largest eyes of any land-based animal in uh, the uh, North America, but uh-huh. their vision is pretty much right on par with ours. Now, they are susceptible to things like blindness, cataracts, uh, uh-huh. forms of ocular cancer, uh, and you know other ailments. But in a horse that's in good shape. You know, their vision's about 20, 30, 20, 40, somewhere in that vicinity. But what makes them uh, unique is their peripheral vision. They can they have peripheral vision that encompasses 350 degrees. So the only blind spot that the horse has in its back is right where the tail is. 
And I always tell people, this is why you never walk right up to the back of a horse, uh, make your presence known, come in from the side or at an angle. That way they can see you. Mm-hmm. And the other blind spot is uh, just away from their snout and out about six feet and down to the ground. So when a horse is negotiating down a, a slope or something like that, you want to relax the rein and allow that horse to drop his head so he can see or she can see where they're going. Um their night vision is quite good on a moonlit night most horses can see as well as we do in the daytime wow so i mean that comes into play when you're talking about places like devil's den and horses trying to pick their way through sure and it also comes into uh the fact that you know again horses are prey not predators so their instinct their eyesight their sense of smell Mm -hmm. uh their hearing is all very acute and that is basically to keep them alive and then they have you know those strong muscular legs that you know uh if something came out and was trying to you know harm them or injure them you know make a meal out of them or whatever you know they have that explosive speed to get away if necessary well there are so many interesting details in this book uh i long since heard and have retailed the story of of dick garnett riding a horse in pickett's charge after lee said to the officers, don't ride, don't go in mounted. Uh, but mm-hmm. you point out that he's not the only one. There were several others. Oh, absolutely. Um, sure. But but since we're running near the end, I, I don't want to fail to ask this question, so I'm going to okay. pop it in here. It is the Civil War time machine that I uh, frequently ask. Uh, usually I ask people who would they like to see if they could go back 30 minutes in time, unarmed, return 30 minutes later from the Civil War, uh, but in your case, I'll ask, which horse of the Civil War would you like to spend 30 minutes with, if you could mm. do that? Uh, you know, I would have to say, and this is because uh, Baldy. Okay. Baldy Baldy. George uh, Meade's horse. Right, absolutely. I mean, you talk about a horse that's tough as nails. This horse was wounded <laughs> six times. Six <laughs> times, and the last one was at Gettysburg. And, you know, Meade tried to spur him forward. He wouldn't go. And, you know, there are pictures of Baldy out there. Uh, you can, you know, type him in and see his uh, photograph. And you can also see what's left of Baldy hanging in the Grand Army of the Republic Museum in Philadelphia. Uh, they have his uh, head and neck stuffed inside the museum. But, you know, I always wanted to, you know, see that horse and just to see, you know, uh, what his personality and demeanor were, you know, just because, you know, you got a horse that was wounded six times and you know, he survived and lived outlived me by 10 years. It's fascinating yes. just yeah. to, to keep going back. He, the, the bond they must have had must have been something. Um, this book is, I see it's. Uh, Gettysburg Publishing is the name of the the publisher. Where can people get this book? Is it uh, generally available? Uh, Well, yes. Uh, You can go to, uh, if you're interested in getting a copy, obviously Mm -hmm. GettysburgPublishing.com. Go there and pick up a copy. Uh, And I believe Kevin has some signed editions uh, in his inventory. Um, Jim Schmick, who uh, is a, a local businessman in the uh, Gettysburg area, I believe is in Mechanicsville. Uh, he owns Civil War and more, mm-hmm. and he has a very nice uh, selection of Civil War books, so you can certainly shop local and try him. Uh, if you happen to be in Gettysburg, obviously the Visitor Center, um, 
carries uh, copies of it. The Heritage Center. Um, we have the uh, Gettysburg Bus Tour Center, the Jenny Wade House. Um, and it sounds like it's all around. Like we, we yeah, and then if all around. else fails, if all mm-hmm. else fails and you're in Nome, Alaska, and you're not going to get out of the house <laughs> anytime soon, you can always go to Amazon.com and oh. uh, pick up a copy, and it's also available on Kindle through Amazon. And if you're going to do that, listeners, go uh, go to impedimentsofwar.org and click the link through there, and that pass-through will help out the website. But uh, but take a look at this book. It is, it is beautiful and uh, informative. I learned more about horses this week than the previous uh, 50 years. We are out of time. Chris, thank you so much. Uh, uh, listeners, the book is called The Horse at Gettysburg, Prepared for the Day of Battle. The author is Chris Bagley, and it's been a pleasure talking with you about it, Chris. Jerry, thank you very, very much for having me on. It was a fun time, and uh, hey, if you ever want to have me on again, give me a holler. I'd be more than happy to. Certainly will. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.